Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is God who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Don't you know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk. And not faint. Father, thank you for your word today that it is like food. You call it milk, honey, meat, bread. Thank you for giving it to us in its entirety, completely, in this American culture. Thank you that the Bible is readily available, and we pray today that you would feed us with its truth. You told us, you commanded us that like newborn babies, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so we can grow. So we come hungry today. You told us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to have full sway in our lives. I pray his ministry across this room, across the airwaves, to everyone listening, to those who have never met the Savior, that today would be a turning point, that they would see Jesus for who he is. For those who already know him and love him, that we would fall at his feet and worship him and present ourselves as living in holy sacrifices, living each and every day for his honor and his glory. We come as children needy in ourselves, but blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And so we ask that as we open the word, you'd open our hearts, that you'd help us to understand it, help me to explain it. Please, Father, come and fill me and anoint me and use me. May I lift up your Son who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you? Revelation chapter 5, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this great book. I hope you bring a Bible to church. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the word of God in your lap. Now, this book is called, in the opening verse, God gave us a title for the book. It's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's given to John, and the words he writes, he tells us he writes for us, the bondservants of the Lord, so that amongst all the various topics and truths that he gives us, we can learn. And we, last week, looked at a glimpse of heaven, and that glimpse continues here in the fifth chapter. What is heaven like? And it's an important passage because there's a lot of misinformation, even in our day, concerning what heaven is really like. There's a lot of New Age practitioners, there's a lot of cranks and cultists and so-called experts that tell you what heaven will be like when you go there, if you go there. But unfortunately, more and more, abandon the truth of Scripture. And what is so sad in our day is that naive evangelicals are searching for the meaning and for a picture of heaven 
outside of God's holy word. And I think it's the product of the 20-minute seeker-sensitive sermon that people no longer see the absolute authority of God's word as the final resting place for truth. A very much talked about book that I am often asked about on the Bible line, our call-in talk show on Tuesdays, and questions come in from all over the country. One of the questions concerns a book written some years back called Heaven is for Real. It's about a four-year-old boy, Colton Burpo, who uh, supposedly dies on the operating table. He goes to heaven, comes back, tells his daddy, who's a physician, all about it, and his dad writes a book about it. And now they have books and study aids and DVD series and all kinds of stuff based on the, the imagination of a four-year-old child. And unfortunately, evangelical presses are ready to go ahead and publish it because it makes them millions of dollars. It's very, very sad. It sells like hotcakes. And yet, it's a shallow brand of Christianity that goes against a principle that Jesus taught and the rest of the New Testament affirms. Do you remember on that occasion when Jesus encountered Nicodemus? He's speaking to him about how to be saved, how to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, and about the truths of heaven. And he reminds Nicodemus that he speaks with absolute authority. Why? Because no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is, no one goes up to heaven and then comes back according to Jesus and tells you about heaven. Why? Because it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You don't die and go to heaven and come back. There's a fixed gulf. It's a permanent place between heaven and hell that you cannot come back from until you come back with Jesus at his second coming. Jesus is saying, listen, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come from heaven. None of your earthly teachers, Nicodemus, can really teach you about heaven. None of them have been there, but that's actually my home. That's where I came from. Therefore, my testimony carries full weight in what I say to you about the second birth you need to heed. In other words, books like Heaven is for Real and scores others like them are based on erroneous information. If they go beyond the Scripture, if they add or subtract to the Scripture, they are violating a principle that this book will close to. And God gives a severe warning to those who would add or subtract to His Word. And so studying these mystical accounts is just plain wrong. Even on our own radio station, I was so irked one day, I called in because one of the national hosts was interviewing someone who had this experience about going to heaven. And the rationale was, listen, John had a vision of heaven. He wrote about it. Paul had a vision of heaven. He wrote about it. Why can't someone else write about it? Because they're not apostles. They wrote about it because God dictated for them to write about it. And to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ with your own eyes. You had to have been personally selected by him to be an apostle. And if those two things were true, then it would be affirmed by unique signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So there are no apostles today and no one who can write about heaven with authority except those who have given us the New Testament. Now, you should want to know about heaven. 
God tells us in Colossians, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, sit at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In 2 Corinthians 4, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In Philippians 3, we are reminded for our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. We ought to be concerned about heaven. We ought to know about it. And these two chapters, 4 and 5, crack the door on it. We'll do a full study of it when we come to the last two chapters. According to Hebrews chapter 11, our perspective of faith needs to be based on God's Word. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, we are told that those who have an authentic biblical faith are strangers and foreigners on this earth. And so in Hebrews 11, 14, it says that they are seeking another homeland. This is not our home. We are to be responsible people in it, but this is not our final destiny. We are not this life only people. And so in Hebrews eleven sixteen, speaking of these men and women of faith, he said, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. I think God's ashamed to call a lot of people his kids because of some of the things they're embracing. But these men and women of faith, he was not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And that city, of course, is the new Jerusalem, the very capital of heaven that, again, we'll study in chapters 21 and 22. It's the final resting place of all those who know the Lord. But you cannot gain, my point is, you cannot gain a better understanding of heaven than what you find here in the Word of God. Now, if I were preaching the highlights of Revelation, I would probably skip the first seven verses or just briefly touch on them and go to the second half of the chapter. But we're going through every verse because it's all given by inspiration of God, and it's important. It's not an easy section, but it's a section we need to understand because it will set the groundwork and foundation for many other things we're going to study in the Revelation. I hope you found it. Chapter 5, begin following in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let me set the context, especially for those of you who are with us for the first time. We learned in Revelation 1-7 that the theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back on the clouds in glory. And in Revelation 1-19, we learned that God gave us a divine outline in which to understand the book. Revelation 1-19 says, Therefore, write the things that you have seen. 
And so after a brief introduction in verses 9 through 20, he writes about what he had seen, this vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ. Write the things that you have seen and the things which are, that is, what's present right then when John is alive in 95 AD. So he writes of seven literal, actual churches that are functioning, that in many ways are representative of churches throughout the ages, and that every church could identify more with one church than another in terms of their spiritual health. And then he goes on and he says, and write the things that will take place after these things. So when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, you know you're coming to a new section because the last three words of 119, two in Greek, metatata, are the first two wor- three words in uh, Revelation 4.1. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. If you were here last week, we studied that this begins the time frame after the church is raptured. God opens the door and He lets the church in. And we saw from Scripture that 24 is a representative number. I gave you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. The 24 elders are representative of a multitude of people called the church, the body of Christ. The church has been let in. They're in the mezzanine of heaven, and they are going to observe and watch what is going to unfold upon the earth. And so in chapters 4 and 5, we've entered into the throne room of God, When we come to chapter 6, 4 and 5 is a preparation for what's going to happen in 6. In chapter 6, the judgments of God are going to begin to be executed all the way through the 19th chapter until the second coming of Jesus. It is such a traumatic, unbelievable time that Jesus could say, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is never given to exaggeration. When you read chapters 6 through 19, you don't want to be left behind. You do not want to miss the rapture and be left behind. Now, while it is possible in your unbelief, or having never heard the gospel, if you were to fall into that category, but none here would, while it is possible to miss the rapture, it is impossible to miss the second coming. First comes the rapture, the Bible teaches, the catching up of the church. The door in heaven is open. And so you will not see the church mentioned from chapter 4 all the way until you come to the 19th chapter. You will read of saints, but those are not church saints. Those are tribulation saints. First comes the rapture, then comes the second coming. The rapture is one event, as this slide illustrates and helps you distinguish the two. The rapture, Jesus comes for His church. We meet the Lord in the air where He takes us to heaven. That time frame is called the day of Christ in the Bible. It's distinctly different than when Jesus comes back with His church. First, He comes for us. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive shall be caught up. We will meet the Lord in the air. That is so different from the passages that describe He will come, plant His feet on the Mount of Olives, even at the ascension of Christ. The angel said He's coming in the exact same way He left. He's coming to the very mountain that He ascended to heaven from. 
So one speaks of the catching up of the church. The other speaks of Christ coming back to the earth. And it's important that you distinguish those two events. And if you miss the rapture, you're in big trouble. If you think you're going to set things in order once all these millions of genuine born-again Christians are gone, you will see that will not happen according to what we're going to study. So John's taken to heaven. And he is given a heavenly perspective of what is going to happen on the earth. The church is gone because the focus of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecies, the final seven years, concerns the people of Israel. And of course, if you look at what is happening on the earth from a purely human perspective, it will cause fear, doubt, confusion, consternation of all kinds. But if you begin to understand what is happening on the earth from the divine perspective, and we're going to have front row seats when this thing unfolds, then you begin to rest and see what God is about and what He is doing. Now, when you get to heaven, as this passage, this whole chapter is going to affirm, affirm Jesus is the center of it all. He is the central focus of heaven. Now, I believe heaven will be a wonderful, glorious place. I believe there'll be real streets of gold, that there will literally be gates of pearl, that there'll be walls of jasper. I believe I'll see Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and Peter and hosts of loved ones that are already gone home to be with Jesus. But the greatest part of heaven will be the Lord himself. We're going to see him. And he, in this chapter, is going to set the stage for what is going to happen in chapter 6 when we begin to study the sale judgments, beginning with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So this morning, as you can see, the title of the message is The Lamb and the Scroll. And there are just three simple truths I want us to think about this morning. The first concerns this mysterious scroll. There's a mysterious scroll that's mentioned beginning now in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, we've already identified from chapter 4 that the one sitting on the throne, of course, is God the Father. And he holds in his right hand a book, a scroll, written, the Bible says here, inside and on the back, or you could say on both sides. Now, it's not a book, it's not a codex like you have in your lap this morning, a book bound with pages. Those really had not come into popular use yet. With a few rare wooden and wax exceptions, all the books at this point were scrolls. And so in the margin of the NASB, they render it scroll. And that's literally what the Greek text says. This is a scroll. It's a parchment. And they made these ancient parchments from papyrus reeds or sometimes animal skins. They would take the reeds and they would lay them flat and they would hammer them together and pound it and pound it. It would typically be smooth on one side and very rough on the other. And typically, you only wrote on one side. But this particular scroll, God is writing on two sides. It's not a problem. God can make a, a scroll, I'm sure, that is perfectly smooth as modern-day paper. 
And he writes on both sides to underscore and to emphasize that the message is full, it's complete, and it is very, very important. In fact, God will not simply speak the truths that we're going to see. He writes out these truths in indelible ink, as it were, so that people can see they are permanent. Much like Pilate, when he wrote the sign above the cross of Jesus, and they said, oh, change that, that's not true. He says, what I have written, I have written. And what the Lord writes on this scroll, no puny little mortal man will be able to change. In addition, this scroll, the Bible says, is sealed up with seven seals. Now, here's a picture of an ancient scroll. This is actually the Isaiah scroll. If you go with me to Israel, you'll see the Dead Sea Scrolls on display. And um, they were usually, again, written on one side. This scroll is written on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. Here's a one illustrator who tries to picture it like this, but that's really not accurate as you read the text. But I don't blame him. I don't know how you can picture it. Uh, Steve, my um, one of my graphics guys, uh, pictured it like this. Um, basically, what was done is they wrote the scroll on both sides, and then they rolled it, and they sealed it, and they rolled it some more, they sealed it. They rolled it some more, and they sealed it. And so you've got these seven, as it were, external slash internal scrolls. And on it is the will of God. Now remember, we saw in the opening verse to the Revelation that this revelation of Jesus Christ is communicated. Uh, the uh, King James says it is signified. And it's the same word that is used and translated in John's gospel as sign. Jesus did many other signs, samion. And so he communicates that the revelation is given through a number of signs. It is signified to him. And sometimes it's difficult to understand what the sign means, especially if you are not familiar with the Old Testament. So we have to dig and we have to study. Some of the signs, it's no mystery at all. Uh, because the next verse or a couple verses later actually interpret the sign for us. But as we noted already, of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 of them have direct allusions to the Old Testament. And so you have to go back and say, oh yeah, I see what's going on here. And he is assuming that people have a certain knowledge, not to mention he is writing to God's bondservants. This book is not for anyone. It is for God's people. And it is assumed, I think, at least to some degree, that God's people will have a heart to dig for the truth, to mine the Scriptures like a man would seek silver or gold, to use Solomon's allusion in the book of Proverbs. And so uh, you might want to write out in the margin Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah 32, and then turn there, if you will. And the prophet Jeremiah, God is instructing his prophet before they are carried away to Babylon to buy a a piece of land in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, God dictated where the various tribes were to stay and be, and, and he was to buy a piece of land for 17 shekels. We studied in the prophet Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, was going to come down and be an instrument of God, an instrument of judgment to carry the people away for 70 years. And I'm having you turn to Jeremiah 32. If you're new, just find Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right. You will soon come to Jeremiah. It's helpful to illustrate the importance of this scroll 
because this is not any old scroll. We're going to see that the scroll that we're studying here in the Revelation is the title deed to the earth. And so there would be scrolls that were not sealed. When a scroll was sealed, it was like, this seal has authority behind it, so you better be careful. You better heed before you crack that seal because you're dealing with the authority behind the seal. Ancient Roman wills and title deeds have actually been found, some that have been unopened, one in particular about 30 years ago that was found with seven seals. It was a miraculous thing that it was still intact. And so, for instance, if you had a Roman deed or will or title deed, seven people would be engaged in sealing with their signet rings the particular scroll, and for that will to even be read, all seven people had to be present. But I just want to illustrate something for you. Now, remember, God is speaking um, to the prophet Jeremiah, your people are going to be carried away for 70 years. We studied that in Daniel 9. Remember, the end of the 70 years is coming. Daniel opens the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah, the one we're reading, and he learns that the time of captivity would be 70 years. He's thinking, oh, it's almost over. How does Daniel interpret prophecy? Literally. He said 70 years in his mind meant 70 years. And so while there are symbols, you still find the meaning of the symbol. And once you find the meaning of the symbol, you interpret it literally. So when Satan is called the great red dragon, he's not like a lot of artists picture him as a dragon with a pitchfork and a forked tail. He, it's describing his ferocious, evil, wicked nature. But once you understand the meaning of the symbol, then you literally believe him. And so here in Jeremiah, God has him buy this piece of property. Why? Because God said in 70 years, your people are going to come back. And here's a piece of property that needs to be redeemed. And I want to underscore by promise and by your action that I'm going to do exactly what I said. By the way, how do you interpret the Bible the way we interpret it? God created within the Bible a principle by which you interpret the Scripture. When you see Daniel interacting with Jeremiah or Jesus interacting with the prophets or the apostles interacting with Jesus or the Old Testament, then you begin to understand that they applied a literal, plain, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Word of God. All right, Jeremiah 32, verse 9. I bought the field, which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son. And I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahaseah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses, who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, 
and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be brought in the, bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God. We sing this. Matt's led us in this before. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are opened all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now drop down to verse 24. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. That's Nebuchadnezzar coming to capture Jerusalem. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And what you have spoken has come to pass. And behold, you see it. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses. Although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. That's why they're being judged, among other reasons. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger in my wrath from the day they had built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. Now listen, verses 36 and 37. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. So follow it. He's got a legal document. They're identical. One is open, one is sealed. So when they would come back 70 years later and they would dig it up, they could easily see Someone didn't just plant these here. Here's the open one that dictates precisely what God said as to whose property this is. And here's an unbroken seal from a signet 70 years before indicating the terms of this. And Jeremiah was redeeming property just like God had commanded in Leviticus chapter 25. And so houses and fields and vineyards will be brought, bought in the land. He is underscoring that there was a payment that needed to be made in order to be able to purchase this piece of property, and it's sealed with a signet ring. 
Now, that's a common function that they did in Jewish culture. And in Roman culture, in extra-biblical literature, they have found, as I mentioned just 30 years ago, a seven-sealed document, unbroken, unopened, miraculously. But they would use them for a human will, but they would also use them for a land grant. But now we are coming to a text of Scripture where there's a seven-sealed scroll where someone is not going to buy a piece of property, the one who is going to open this scroll, as we're going to see in the sixth chapter and following, is being given the title deed to the earth. All right? Now, that's the uh, mysterious scroll, just to wet your taste. Stay with me. We're not done. You're with me? Say amen. All right, good. Let's think about the meticulous scroll, the meticulous search, the meticulous search. Beyond this mysterious scroll, there's a search, and the search is delivered to us here in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So when John sees a strong angel who is called to step forward and ask a question, Everyone can hear. The strong angel's name, in this case, is not given, but with a loud voice, he asks the question, who is worthy to open the book, to open the scroll, and to break its seals? Now, he's deemed a strong angel, and the strength of this particular strong angel that is accented, of course, is his voice. By the way, there are just four named angels in the Bible. Two of them are holy angels. Two of them are fallen angels. We studied two of the named angels in the book of Daniel, namely Michael and Gabriel, who also, of course, come into the New Testament. Then there are two fallen angels that are given names in the Scripture. Lucifer, prior to his fall, his name literally means a shining one, so you could render it that way or interpreted that way, but his fallen name, of course, is Satan in the New Testament. The other only fallen angel that's named, we will meet him when we come to Revelation 9, his name is Apollon in Hebrew, Abaddon. He gives us also the Greek rendering as well, like Christ and Messiah. We're going to have a Greek and a Hebrew name. You say, what about the angel Moroni? He's not in the Bible, not the angel moron. He's in the Book of Mormon, all right? Listen, there's just two holy angels and two fallen angels. And we've already seen that there are different categories of angels. God has organized his angels into principalities and powers. There's ranks. There's cherubim, whom we looked at last week. There are seraphim. And when we study angels, we, one, learn that in 2 Peter 2 and verse 11, they are more powerful than men. There was a huge stone there at the empty tomb. And if you've been to the garden tomb, it's estimated that rock would be over 2,000 pounds. And the women, of course, could not move the stone. But an angel of the Lord moved it. They are powerful. They're intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They are intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are faster than humans, but they're not omnipresent. But occasionally the Bible describes an angel in a particular way. And we will see in the Revelation that there are two strong angels that are mentioned. One, when we come to chapter 18, who's deemed a strong angel because he's able to take a mighty millstone and cast it into the sea. 
But this strong angel is distinguished as such by the voice that God gave him. And the voice that he shouts is able to reach across the universe, across the heavens, to the ends of the earth, even below the earth, into the recesses of hell. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And John is waiting anxiously. He's searching the horizon. He's looking. He's waiting. He's praying. He's hoping. But no one answers. Just dead silence. Of course, until John breaks that silence with his own weeping. But again, verse 3 tells us that this loud voice literally fills the universe. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. It echoes across the planet, through the galaxies of heaven, even into the deepest recesses of hell. Who is worthy? And I'm sure the world will have some explanation when this voice, oh, there's aliens from heaven who are talking to us. Who knows what they'll come up with? But this is a challenge to all of humanity, to all of recorded civilization, Who or what has the right to take the scroll, which is the title deed to all the earth? Amongst all the sons of Adam, who is worthy? Who is capable? And the answer is no one. Now, more than one ruler, of course, in human history has tried to take the title deed to the earth. We studied King Nebuchadnezzar and all of his pride and glory who boasted of the great kingdom that he had built, but it eventually collapsed. We studied in Daniel chapter 11, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world of his day, an empire that went as far as Persia, Asia Minor, all the way to India, the Bible records. But at the age of 32, when there were no more lands to conquer, he fell down and got into a drunken stupor, and at his own extravagant banquet, he died. Likewise, Julius Caesar, he moved across Europe with the Pax Romana, with the Roman peace, but the Roman Empire itself, with moral corruption, fell apart from within. Napoleon sought to rule the world through the French Empire. He failed. Hitler thought he could rule the world. Saddam Hussein in his lifetime sought to unite in a rebuilt Babylon all the Muslim nations of the world that they might rule, but he failed. Many men throughout the ages have failed, but there is one who is coming who will be very close to success, and we're going to learn his name is Antichrist. He actually has over 30 names that are found in the Scripture. And he will come to rule the world, but his rule will only bring ruin. There are people who, with their egotistical, tyrannical nature, thought that they could rule the world, but all they brought is hardship and evil. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This is a picture of the absolute helplessness of humanity as it relates to the future of the world. Now, we don't know what tomorrow may bring in our own personal lives, so the Bible tells us we're to be prudent. We are to plan for tomorrow, but we're not to be anxious over tomorrow. We can't see what the future will bring, but God sees the future. And God reveals a lot to us, and we need to have this perspective that He's going to give us here in the Revelation, or as things get worse, you're going to despair and really think that the world is out of control. 
And so John breaks the silence in verse 4. Notice, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Think about it. There's not an angel in heaven. There's not a Christian on earth. There's not a prophet. There's not an apostle. Abraham, the father of the faithful and the friend of God, was not worthy. Isaac, who is a type and illustration of Christ, he was not worthy. Jacob, who became the progenitor of the 12 tribes from which Messiah came, he was not worthy. Not even Moses was worthy. And God says of Moses that he was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Job could not be considered worthy to open the scroll. And yet God said of him, there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. In fact, Noah, Daniel, and Job are brought together in Ezekiel as three men who are described as righteous men. And yet none of them are worthy. King David, A man after God's own heart was not worthy. And even John the Baptist and Jesus said, there was never a man ever, a human, born of a woman greater than John. But John was not worthy. No one alive, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. There was no one, no son of Adam, who could legitimately claim the title deed to the earth. No one on the face of the earth could rescue and rule and redeem this world. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy. Please notice the question in verse 3 is not who is willing to open the book. Many have been willing, but who is worthy to open the book? And I began to weep, clio. There are different words for crying in the Bible. This means uncontrollable sobbing. This is not a few tears running down the cheek. This is a wailing. This is a deep sobbing. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John knows this world needs to be redeemed, and if it's not, then his time there on the Devil's Island on the Isle of Patmos is wasted. If no one can redeem the world, then the promises that God made to the people of Israel that Messiah will literally rule and reign upon the earth and God will be glorified in a golden age, that it will never happen. He knows that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that that cannot happen if no one is worthy to open the scroll. And so it's really a picture of broken humanity. And God is allowing his servant to go through this for a reason. Because he wants to underscore the one who is worthy, the one who can open the book and redeem humanity from the mess that we are in. Now, that brings us to the third point. Beyond the mysterious scroll and the meticulous search, we come to the magnificent Savior the magnificent Savior. The Apostle John, he's overcome with grief because no one is found worthy to open the book with its seven seals. He knew the seriousness of this situation. He knew that human destiny will remain a closed book, that all of God's promises will be nullified if it cannot be opened. And so he weeps, not as someone who is just disappointed, but someone who is in despair. It's like God is allowing his servant to go through a bad dream to underscore for us that there is hope. And of course, this would be great news to the seven churches that were being persecuted. 
And the answer is going to come from one of the 12, from one of the 24 elders whom we studied last week. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. The lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, those are very significant Jewish titles. They're introduced to us here in Revelation 5 in kernel form, but they become very important as we work through the revelation, and that's why we're not skipping this. They refer to prophecies that God made concerning the Messiah. The Bible predicted that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, specifically the family of David. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons was named Judah. And God predicted, he prophesied that his son Judah would be the progenitor, his people, for the Messiah. And out of that tribe, there are all these different families, and one family in particular, namely the family of David, to tighten the focus a little bit more. And by the way, these messianic titles alone will become clear reminders to us that Israel is going to come back on center stage during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's very important when you think about that. So, who is this one who is worthy to open? Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. The lion. Remember, Jacob, when he blessed Judah, he called him a lion's whelp. And so they camped under the banner of a lion, as we saw last time. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the great messianic titles in the Old Testament that's repeated here in the Revelation. Now, remember, Jesus grew up in a family with at least seven half-brothers and sisters. His four brothers are named, and sisters is plural, that's six, so that would make a family of seven children plus Mary and Joseph. This idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical concept. The way our Roman Catholic friends get to that is they do from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, where brother can mean cousin, but brother in the Greek New Testament, the language God inspired it in, can only mean brother as sister, all right? So anyway, here's the point. He grew up in this family, and uh, there are all these different brothers and sisters that he grew up with, and I can imagine what that was like. I mean, imagine growing up in the family where, uh, you know, Jesus is like, you know, Jesus never does anything wrong. Why can't you be like Jesus, you know? I mean, you can imagine the, the animosity that could have developed among some of the brothers and sisters. And of course, there, there came a time in their, in their life when Jesus said, look, I'm not just uh, your brother. I'm Messiah. I am God in human flesh. And what did they conclude? He's, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's out of his gourd. He's lost it, man. So this is an important title. He's of the tribe of Judah. Judah, we get our word Jew from that particular brother. Jacob prophesied that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. But the elder also described this one who is able to open the scroll as being of the root of David. That speaks of Messiah's royalty. Remember, three big titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Son of God, affirming his deity. Son of man, affirming his humanity. Son of David, affirming his royalty, that he is king. And so Messiah is going to rule on David's throne. God said that to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. 
that your son is going to sit on David's throne. When did that happen? It has never happened. But it is going to happen. And so for my dear brothers in the Lord who are into replacement theology, that God is done with the Jew, that Israel is of no significance, they are not plainly, literally interpreting what God said concerning his son and his right to rule upon the earth. The prophet Isaiah, we read it every Christmas, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. A child's been given to us, but the governments have not rested on his shoulders. We studied in Daniel that in one verse of Scripture, both comings of Christ could be magnified. And of course, if you're a Jew living in the first century and you're under the oppression of Gentiles as they had been since the time of King Nebuchadnezzar and will be until the end of the tribulation, you'd want a victorious Messiah who would crush Rome. One who would have the governments on his shoulders, not one who came in sandals walking through dusty streets and ends up crucified. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. But remember, there are two comings of Messiah. First, he comes as a suffering servant, but then he comes as a mighty ruler who will rule and reign over the earth. The governments will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's the Eternal Father. Not that he is the Father, but he's the Eternal Father and that by his work on Golgotha, he is able to birth spiritual children, people who are born again, who become members of the family of God. He is the Prince of Peace. But here's the point. We can understand the root of David in that term because it communicates both his deity and his humanity. He's the predecessor of David. He's the root of David, but he's also the offspring of David. And so when you go to Isaiah chapter 11, you see those pictures. He is the shoot that comes out after David, but at the same time, he is the root of David. As far as his humanity is concerned, he is the shoot. He comes after David. As far as his deity is concerned, he is the root of David. Remember, Jesus presented this same conundrum in Matthew 22 to the Jews. And he said, remember, David, the Lord said to my Lord, I'm going to make all of your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus asked them a question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Because Jesus is not only the predecessor to David, he is a descendant of David. He's the root and he's the shoot. And so he's underscoring here that he is not only David's uh, son, so to speak, he is David's creator and he is David's king. Jesus says in Revelation 22, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David. There it is in one verse, the bright and morning star. He is the only person who could be both fully human and fully God. He's born as a Jew upon the earth. He's of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David. But he can also say before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. Now we read in verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures. We were introduced to them last week. We'll study them more next time and in the weeks to come. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, notice, a lamb standing. This elder speaks to John with full assurance that there is one who is able to break the scrolls. 
one who's able to break the seals on the scroll, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome. Now, in verse 6, he indicates that the victory did not come from the paws of a lion, but from a lamb. Who's able to overcome? The lion of the tribe of Judah. John looks, but he doesn't see a lion with its mighty mane and its ferocious paws. He sees a lamb, a lamb standing as if slain. Now, John loves to use the term lamb to describe Jesus. In fact, he is the only gospel writer who does so. John the Baptist introduced the Lord Jesus with the words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In over 30 places here in the Revelation, he refers to the Lord Jesus as a lamb. No doubt picking up the terminology from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a chapter I used to use at Duke University in Jewish evangelism. And if God gives me a chance when I go to Israel to share with a Jew, I go to Isaiah 53. Because like Paul, you have to reason from their scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And Isaiah 53, 7 says, Messiah was oppressed and he was afflicted. It's what we call a prophetic past tense, when a Hebrew man wanted to underscore how sure and certain something was that was going to happen in the future, he put it in the prophetic past. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So the lamb becomes central to this book, and the cross of that lamb becomes in the forefront of our thinking. It's the heart of the book. And interestingly, he doesn't use the word that you would expect for lamb. He uses the Greek word for lamb that is the, the diminutive form of a little baby pet lamb. So he's making this huge contrast between a ferocious lion and a little baby lamb to underscore the significance of how God was going to get the title deed back. Now remember, Satan, he's called the God of this world. God initially gave this world to Adam and his descendants, that would be us. But because we sinned in with Adam, the world fell and man lost his dominion. So Satan is called with a small g, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Adam lost the farm, so to speak. And there's no son of Adam who is able to redeem the world. Remember, I took you to Jeremiah 32 because the prophet based on the Levitical law, which was a type of what Messiah would do, Leviticus 25, he had to purchase the land for a sum of money. God has to purchase the world with the blood of a lamb. He is going to purchase our redemption because remember when man fell, the whole world fell with it. The world as you see it today is beautiful and as magnificent it is in some parts of this earth. It doesn't even begin to compare the way God originally made it. So he comes as a lamb who is worthy to open the book. He is able to do it because he is going to die as a lamb slain. And when we study the Revelation, and as we work through this book, this slain lamb, again, the cross is central. A Sunday school teacher thought she would ask a clever question of her children one day, and she said, kids, I want to ask you a question. 
what in heaven is man-made? And most of the kids said, oh, there's nothing in heaven man-made. No, everything in heaven is stamped, made by God, so to speak. No made in China there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one little boy stepped up. He said, no, there's one thing man-made in heaven. She said, oh, what's that, little Johnny? The nail scars of Jesus. And they are still there. Just as Jesus in his resurrected body invited Thomas, see here my hands, look here at my sides. We sing it in that great hymn, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. He's a lamb, but notice, he's a lamb standing as is slain. That affirms he is a victorious lamb. He is the lamb who is not only pierced through for our iniquity, but the one whom the prophet said in that 53rd chapter, who would not undergo decay. Why? Because he would rise again from the dead. And so in chapter one of the revelation, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here in verse six, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing. He stands with all of the blessings, with all of the authority, with all of the right to take earth back, and we're going to see him do that beginning in the sixth chapter with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. John brings together these two images of a lionly lamb, a sovereign, reigning, ferocious lion who is going to release his wrath, and a lamb who has died so that men can escape that wrath. I saw between the throne with the four living elders and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Notice, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We are now talking about the power of this lamb, about the power of the Lord Jesus. He's no longer a passive, meek lamb led to slaughter. He is mighty. He's described here as having seven horns. And if you were with us in our study of Daniel chapter 8, I went through the imagery in the Bible. You can go back and listen to it as to how horns are representative of governmental authority, of one who is in charge. And the fact that he has seven horns, seven being the, the, the number of complete completeness and absolute perfection with absolute perfection and complete power he will rule and he has seven eyes you know i know you read seven horns seven eyes seven spirit after a while your eyes start glazing over you know he was but these are important the eyes of the lord see and jesus has perfect sight no one is going to pull the wool over his eyes He will see everything and alongside in this great Trinitarian scene are the seven spirits of God the Son, of God the Spirit, whom we saw express his seven ministries, and he too is watching. Verse seven, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, the Father, who sat on the throne. Now, interestingly, remember in Greek, there's not only the time of time, but there's the kind of kind kind of time. There's the time of time like we have, past, present, and future. 
And we have a little more difficulty in English giving the kind of time, like there's a present tense that can be ongoing. Well, he uses here not only a past tense, but he uses what's called an intensive perfect. You say, well, that blesses me, Pastor. Well, let me, let me bless you with it. He, he is underscoring, because you wouldn't expect it here, he is underscoring that when the scroll is given to God the Son, it's never released. He has absolute authority, and no one is going to take it away from him. And when John sees this and John realizes this, this man who, Clio, is weeping, sobbing deeply with the rest of heaven, as we'll see next time, will be singing and praising the Lamb upon the throne. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me make some suggestions as we close. Number one, I'm reminded today by way of introduction that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He just dropped in these two terms, like the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he's going to expand on them, and he's going to show you through the revelation that the people of Israel are front and center. Why is that important? Because there's a lot of Christians, even evangelicals, who teach what's called replacement theology. And they just say, oh, that's just symbolic. God's not really using the Jew. And it was hard to preach if you were a born-again pastor a hundred years ago that God was not done with the Jew, that just as He used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming, He'll use them to bring about the second coming. I told you that the return of Jesus for His church is imminent. There's never, ever in the history of the world been a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and catch up His church. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. A one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world ruler, and so on. A, a mark that men must take to be able to buy or sell anything. 666. All kinds of prophecy. But when God begins to set the stage for the second coming of the Messiah, you know the rapture that precedes it is that much closer. When you see the Christmas decorations around Halloween go up in Walmart, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see God setting the stage, gathering the Jews back into Israel, reestablishing them as a nation... Look up, my friends, because God is setting the stage for His Son to come. And the promises that God made in the Old Testament were unconditional to the Jewish people. The church has not taken them. God is going to bring, as we see in the Revelation, the people of Israel front and center because God is not done with them yet. In fact, the instrument that God is going to use is this wrath that's going to begin to unfold in the sixth chapter that halfway through becomes the great tribulation. The tribulation period becomes the great tribulation period, and God will use it so that the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced. They'll realize this was all in our scriptures, and they're going to say, Yeshua is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Secondly, not only do I am I reminded by introduction that God is not done with Israel, Jesus Christ is not a person that you can easily dismiss. When you read this passage, John in this vision weeps because no one is worthy to open the book. And the only one in all of the universe who steps up is called the Lamb. It's Jesus. Do you really want to believe, as millions of people say they do today, that Jesus is just a prophet? 
I want to tell you, if you conclude in your mind that he is just a prophet, just another religious teacher, then you are basically saying to God, God, I am rejecting what your word says. I am going against the plain teaching of the Bible that there is only one in all the universe who is worthy to open the scroll. And when we come to it next time, we're going to see all of heaven worshiping the Lamb standing to the right of the throne. Listen to worship anyone other than God is sheer blasphemy and idolatry. But all of heaven is worshiping Jesus just as those two women in that garden fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Listen, a day is coming and the scroll is going to begin to be opened. And you talk about some chilling pages. I mean, by the time we're done with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you're going to say, how could anyone live? And that's only the start. When you hit the midpoint of the tribulation, I mean, it gets unbelievable chilling. And if you're left behind, you'll be here to experience that. And that wrath on the earth will then turn into the eternal wrath of God. A day is coming when you will meet Jesus. You will either meet him as a lamb who died in your place, whom you entrusted and embraced as your personal Lord, or you will meet him as the lion of the tribe of Judah in his mighty fury and wrath. Don't ever buy this stuff that, oh, God is so loving that he is not going to judge us. People say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath. I believe the God in the New Testament. I said, you've never read the New Testament. Because when you read the New Testament and the wrath of God, the expressions and the definitions are so much more severe and clear than anything you will find in the Old Testament. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. And if you die for all of eternity without God's Son, you'll have no one to blame but yourself because God has made a provision. One day in heaven, we'll be there. The church will be witnessing it. The Lamb will take this seven-sealed scroll. He'll take it out of the hand of the Father and He will begin to open it And it will be an end of sin and man's rebellion and Satan by the time it is all done. And if you know the Lord, you will enjoy Him. But if you don't know Him today, my friend, it will be your fault. What will you do? What will you do with Jesus? You cannot ignore him. You cannot write him off. You have to either say, I reject this book as the word of God or I embrace it. But the picture of this one is so clear, you can't straggle on some fence with no decision. Now, our Father, we thank you today for being able to crack the door to this great chapter Thank you that you will use this, I believe, to prepare us as we study the revelation. And may we as your people have compassion on individuals that we'll meet even this week, maybe even today, 
to warn them of the wrath that is to come. You've commissioned us to go and to share, help us to be ready and available and wanting. Give us that opportunity. We know we can't speak to everyone, but we can speak to someone. And so we pray with the Apostle Paul of old that you would give us an open door and that this week you might give us not only the open door, but the ability to make the gospel clear. I pray today, Father, for someone with who's listening here or maybe even some other country of the world who is unsure of their salvation. Help them to know that because Jesus is the slain lamb who is resurrected and standing, because he died and was buried and was raised, what you call the gospel, the power to save us, that if they will call upon him in humility to save them and to change them, that you will do it right now. Thank you for your promise. Help someone to say in their heart, in faith, knowing you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. And thank you, our Father, that though the people of this world think that they may be in control, and while at times, and we turn on the news, Father, and it seems like the world is out of control, you are on your throne. And you are unfolding history just as you planned by your sovereign ways and power. We bless you for that and for the stability that it brings into our lives. We bless you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.